Well, preliminary questions, right? We answered a series of preliminary questions of Romans. So we'll just jump quickly through that then. So we know who wrote it. Apostle Paul, not really a doubt there. It was written in the winter of A.D. 57 to 58. Um, it was written to the church in Rome. Why? So there's several purposes. Um, seven of them, as, as and probably more. Uh, it was to prepare the Roman believers for his visit, to change his base of operations to Rome. Remember, he went from Jerusalem to Antioch, Syria, and now it's going to move from there to Rome. He wants to, because he wants to continue to expand west. Um, he wanted to provide the Roman church with a firm theological grounding because that was not founded by any apostle. Um, he wanted to resolve Jewish-Gentile tension to understand and vindicate God's righteousness and that we kind of talked on how God promised Israel many things. And just because they rejected their Messiah doesn't mean that God is not going to fulfill their promises. And so Paul is going to vindicate God's righteousness in the gospel. The gospel is what vindicates God's righteousness in that God is righteous in offering salvation to the Gentiles, right? And, and to all, really. And so that's how he'll vindicate God's righteousness. Um, he thought he would die, could die soon, so he wanted to preserve the gospel before he died to them. And then just like every other place he went to, the Judaizers came and, and would mess up the doctrine of the gospel and the, and the way, and so he wanted to insulate them from false teachers. So the primary theme, which we have talked to a lot in the book of Acts, actually, is the righteousness of God has been revealed and that people can enter into this righteousness through the gospel, right? To the Jew first and then to the Greek. So it's unique because God, you can obtain God's righteousness outside of the Mosaic law, right? Um, this is the most theological of Paul's letters. Um, it's the most theological treatment of the gospel. It touches a broad range of subjects. It's the most formal, it's the longest of Paul's letters, and it, it draws extensively from Old Testament citations. Again, because it was written to a church that he'd never been to or any other apostle had ever started. That's unique. Um, and it's had tremendous influence on prominent Christians throughout history, and we're praying that it will have tremendous effect on us as well. So a presupposition is that God is the Holy One, doesn't try to defend or try to um, prove God's existence of who he is. It simply presupposes that he is the Holy One, the creator, the sustainer, and the sovereign ruler of the universe, just like Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God, there's no, let's talk about, uh, you know, prolegomena or presuppositions. No, the presupposition is God is there, and this is who he is, right? So Romans goes through 11 of the 13 sort of uh, categories of systematic theology and we'll get through all those um, and then the outline is basically um, justification sanctification glorification that's gonna be the first eight chapters and kind of understanding the past present and, and future tense of salvation um, and then he splits in verse in chapters 9 to 11 to remind everybody who Israel is and what their future is and then 12 through 16, the chapters 12 through 16 is the application of being saved, the application of being justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now what do you do? How do you do that? Right? So that's basically Romans.
All right, we're done, yeah? <laughs> All right, so now we're going to actually start Romans 1, right? So the first 17 verses are actually introductory. Does anybody have any questions? Good? Pretty good? All right. So they're introductory, and they are introducing the revealing of righteousness, how one becomes righteous. He'll provide reasons for writing this letter, um, and then he'll spell out the theme. We said the theme was 16 and 17, so the first 15 verses are going to be um, about the revealing of God's righteousness, right? So A is the salutation, right? So Paul's going to define his position. The first seven verses, he's going to find his position and then the position of the readers and their relationship to God, right? So he's going to, un he's going to spelling, be spelling out a unifying element um, that would be true for him and of the audience or the, those that are in the Church of Rome that he's writing to. So let's read verse 1. Someone read that, please. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, so we see the English name Paul, right? Just it's Latin Paulus. And it means small or humble. We already went over that, right? We know that um, a misconception is commonly taught that when Paul became a Christian, he changed his name from Saul to Paul, right? But that's not true. That Paul is his Christian name. No, it's not true. Um, so when a Jew becomes a believer in Christ, doesn't, he doesn't lose his Jewish identity, right? He doesn't become a Gentile believer. He still remains a Jew, right? Uh, and Paul never changed his name. Rather, um, Jews that left Israel would have two names. They'd have a Hebrew name and they would have a Greek name, right? Um, or a Gentile name. Um, it's still true of most Jews, actually, today. Um, and then there was no such thing as a Christian name, actually, in that time. So Paulus was a very common Latin name, and there's other people who had that name, and many of them were pagans, Acts 13.7 in his example. So a name doesn't indicate their spiritual condition as a saved or unsaved person, right? And we talked in Acts 13.9, it just says, but Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fastened his eyes on him. So all, all it is is making clear that Paul didn't change his name. He's also called Saul, right? Um, so why did, they why did he be named Paul or be go by the name Paul? And that's just simply because he went to the Gentiles, right? As an apostle to the Gentiles, they would use his Gentile name, Paul. Um, that's it. Yeah? Okay, so... In 1.1b, Paul calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. So Paul was a Jew from Tarsus in the diaspora, right? So when he says a servant of Christ Jesus, the Greek term for servant is doulos, and it could be translated as bond slave. So there's a difference between slave and a bond slave, right? A slave would have no choice, right? Usually they became a slave for a reason beyond their control. It could be many things. When a Jew fell into debt and they couldn't pay it back, um, his only option was to sell himself to slavery until, he, until um, the seventh year of servitude where the Mosaic law allowed them to leave, right, to, be, to, pay, their, to pay it back. Um, so then 
if he got released, but he still didn't want to go, he could choose to remain as a slave, right? And that's what you would call a bond slave. So a slave would be one who, not by their choosing, a bond slave is where you choose to remain in that position. <coughs> so when you become a believer, you don't go from a slavery of sin to a slavery to, to slavery to God, right? You move from slavery of sin to freedom. And at that point, you choose to be a slave to the Lord, right? You're choosing yourself to bind yourself to God, right? A bond slave. You're bonding yourself to him. Um, so you're a willing servant, a willing slave of God. So that's what Paul is saying about himself. And he's going to be encouraging those in Romans 12 when he says, present your bodies a living holy sacrifice, right? That's what it is, is that they're going to be choosing to willingly bind themselves to God's service because of all the mercies that they have been given. They, he's encouraging them to willingly bind themselves to God. He's already done that, right? And that's why he calls himself a bond slave or a slave, right? A servant of Christ Jesus. Um, so we also, so not only was he Paul, right? And not only was he a bond slave of Christ, but he was also an apostle, right? So he's declaring his authority, his office, his position in the church. So he had the gift of apostleship. And then in Corinthians 12, right, that's the most important of the 19 gifts of the Spirit. And we believe Scripture teaches that the apostles are no more, right? The apostles were only those, those 12, basically, right? Paul becoming later, um, but he saw, he saw the risen Christ. And then 1D, Paul was separated, right? He was set apart in the past, Right, and it continues even now. Um, remember, he was a Pharisee of Mishnaic Judaism under Gamaliel, but now, uh, now he's a spiritual Pharisee in the sense that he's totally set apart for the Messiah. Right. So, because he was totally set apart, he chose to become a bond slave. And then he even tells us what he was enslaved to or separated to. He was separated to the gospel of God. Right. It's not his gospel necessarily, but God's gospel, right? And the source was God. God authored the gospel. And then let's look at verse 2. We see where that gospel comes from. Read verse 2, if you would. Which is promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so the Holy Scriptures are what promised, that God promised through the prophets, what the gospel is, right? <clears throat> God had promised beforehand in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, through his prophets, this gospel that Paul was preaching. So remember all the issues that the Jews had with Paul, right? They had all these issues with Paul, not just because it was a, 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 a you know a side tangent that he was creating new scripture or he was creating new words, he used their own scripture. He basically reinterpreted it according to God's idea rather than their idea. That's why they had such issue with him was because they had been teaching according to their traditions and customs. <clears throat> but Paul was teaching the gospel through their own words, right? Through the prophets and the law, right? So the gospel that Paul preached was was 
from God. It was revealed in his word. Um, and we'll, we talked last week how he uses over 60 quotations in this letter um, of the Hebrew scriptures, right? So these quotations prove that he's using um, the written word of God that Jews already had. Um, the new message, the good news of Messiah, it did not contradict the Hebrew scriptures, but affirmed them, right? And so um, we're going to see that he is going to bring revelation to it, some illumination, some mysteries, right? Mysteries just mean that it's things that were not understood or revealed in the Old Testament, but now they are. But um, the gospel that Paul preached did come from the word of God that they had, right? Okay, so we're going to learn more about the gospel Paul preached in verses 3 and 4. So read verses 3 and 4, please. Concerning his son, who was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of Right, so just know, I mean, that's a lot right there, right? A lot going on of the position of Christ, the position of, of man, the, you know, all these covenants, things that are there. So verses three and four tell us the truth about the gospel and that it is centered on one specific per person, right? It's, it's concerning God's son. So verse three is concerning his humanity, the son's humanity, right? Because he was born or descended from David according to the flesh, so that's his humanity. Many times we're going to be discussing this hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is just a fancy term that, of God-man, right? His divinity and his humanity all in one. Without, without weakness or one stronger than the other, they are equal. Um, and then as to his humanity, he was a descendant of King David. And so it connects Jesus with the Davidic covenant, right? And then verse 4 shows his divine side, right? Who, so he was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all here, right? So what does it mean that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, right? by resurrection. Does it mean that he became the son at the resurrection? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the answer is no. It did. He wasn't the son of God because of the resurrection. The resurrection proved that he was the son of God, right? That makes sense? Um, so he was already the son before the resurrection. It just proved his sonship, proved the things that he declared to be, right? He declared to be the son of God. He declared to be with the father before time began. He declared that he and the father were one, right? Let's jump over to Acts 17.31, if we would, because we're going to see kind of a similar point. So read 1731, if you would. Because he hath fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man to whom he hath appointed. And of this he hath given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right, so that, that, re that resurrection assured 
mankind that there will be a judgment, basically, right? That he has ordained this man, the one whom was my son and, re and died and resurrected, that's the one and who will judge the world. Um, and the resurrection or the raising of the dead proves to the world that he is worthy to do that, right? Good? The New American Standard also says, having furnished proofs to all men by raising him from the dead. Yeah. Right. Assurance unto all men, proof, right. Okay, so like we're saying, the resurrection proved not only sonship, but also the issue of sin was completely dealt with at the cross, right? It authenticated his claims to godhood, deity, and his own prophecies. He prophesied, right, Christ in his lifetime prophesied that he would rise from the dead. That's in Matthew 16 and John 2. Um, it came, so this declaration came with power according to the spirit of holiness. So according to the flesh, Jesus was the son of David. According to God's spirit, he was the Messiah, right? So Paul continues and he says, so he's identifying who Jesus is, right? The whole gospel surrounds one man, that he is the son of David, that he is the son of God, and he's also our Lord, right? He, he says that he is our Lord, right? So now read verse 5. Okay, so he's continuing, Paul is continuing to uh, elaborate on his own personal relationship with Christ, right? So not only was Jesus Paul's Lord, um, he was also the one through whom we received grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake. So he's saying we, who do we think the we is? So you just said it, the apostles. When he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship through, right? So who builds the church? The apostles and Christ as a cornerstone, right? And so he's identifying himself with the other apostles. So he's making a claim to this church in Rome that was never established by an apostle, that I am an apostle, so I'm going to establish you, basically, right? It's kind of what he's saying. And so he's received, he and the other apostles received grace to bring about the gospel or the obedience of faith for whose sake? Right, for the name of Christ, his name's sake, among or where, right? All the nations, right? So other apostles had their places of ministry, Peter was in Jerusalem or Israel and the other apostles that were there. Paul is saying that I am among them receiving grace from God as an apostle to bring about to you and to others the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name to all the nations. Yeah, we go with that? So he's possessing he he says he's the apostle he possesses the apostle the office of apostleship and yet he's saying i am equal to the other apostles as like peter would be right and this was accomplished because he was obedient to faith as well right the obedience is not through works or it's not through healings or anything like that it's it's just 
obtained strictly by faith that Christ has called him to have that ministry, that office, and so he's obedient to it. Uh, and his specific area of calling is among all the nations. And then the reason or the basis is to uh, grow, augment, manifest the Messiah's name among all those nations. So after sort of spelling out his own relationship, he now is going to turn to the Roman church uh, and, and tells out their relationship. So read verse 6, if you would. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Right, so just as though he was an apostle and called to Christ, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So the believers also belong to Christ, to the Messiah, just as he and the other apostles did. They may not have, these believers don't have the gift of apostleship, but they do share in the gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, right? So this salvation comes through them by way of Jesus Christ, just as he and Peter and John and James and all these apostles received salvation from Christ, they too. They might have the gift of apostleship, but they will have another gift to benefit the church, right? So verse 7a, are we good so far? We, we know these things, right? We, we already know these things, but it's how, it's Paul just said, I mean, he literally, in, in three sentences, it's like all this stuff is there, you know? You just unpack it and we realize, oh, it is really that simple. It is really condensed to those things. Okay, so now we see him addressing the audience. So read verse 7a, if you would. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay, so right. So this letter we see is addressed to the church in Rome. He's saying they are loved of God, right? And that they were called to be saints. So saint is, can kind of be used in a couple different ways. Um, it, it can describe members of the visible local church, like in Acts 9. Um, it's also used to describe the invisible church, the universal, excuse me, invisible church, meaning the body of Christ. And it's also used to describe individual believers, right? Um, so here it's meaning holy in a sense, set apart, um, is that a person is set apart by way of salvation, God saving them, so they are set apart, and therefore they have this sainthood, right? It's kind of a technical term. When you are in Christ, when you're no longer in the world, but you are in Christ, you are a saint, right? You're set apart, you're holy. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you daily. You've already been justified, you're being sanctified, and you will be glorified, right? It's a, it's a legal position that you are in and nothing can take you out of that not even yourself right once you because he does all of it he does all the things all we do is just believe and receive it by faith that's it right so being sanctified by god every believer then is a saint and it was true of paul's audience the church of rome right and then he ends uh, with the salutation, 7b says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know grace is the Greek greeting and peace is the Jewish greeting, right? Um, so, and he's saying it, the source of this greeting is from both God the Father and Jesus Christ. So he's got heavy, heavy uh, doctrine and, and, and 
uh, understanding just in these first few verses. Are we good? Any any thoughts or questions or comments? Anything? I have a note on the line back on verse 4 where it says um, that he was declared the son of God with power. That's the word he's getting that he said dynamite. Huh. Dynamite. Dynamite. Okay. <coughs> Eight. Are we good? So eight through fifteen, um, he's he. So the first few verses, he's establishing his relationship to Christ and the church's relationship. Now he's going to establish a rapport with the church in Rome, right? So he's going to make three points, and he wants to sort of establish his rapport with them. So in verses eight through eleven, he's, we're going to see he prays for the church. Then he's going to explain the mutual benefit of their of his visit to them in verses twelve and thirteen, and then third, he'll detail his obligation to preach the gospel to all Gentiles, including those in Rome, in verses fourteen and fifteen. So B one the the intercessory prayer. Um, so he's going to make three points um, about his prayer life for them. So let's read verse 8. You would? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. All right, so Paul's, the object of Paul's gratitude or gratefulness was God. He gives thanks to God uh, through Jesus Christ because of these church believers' position or because of their faith, right? Um, the, just the very existence of God causes Paul, uh, the very existence of the church causes Paul to be grateful to God, right? Because people all over the inhabited world had heard about this church in Rome, right? How it's proclaimed in all the world, right? So he's grateful to God that this Roman church exists because the gospel of God goes out, right? Um, like we said, this church was not founded by an apostle or, or any, any, I'll just say that, it wasn't founded by an apostle nor was it founded by Paul, right? Um, so it was founded by Jewish believers who had left Israel for whatever reason and are now in Rome. Um, so the church had quickly become a primary place uh, for Gentile believers. So there were some Jewish believers in there, but it had quickly become a primary church for Gentile believers there. And while he's writing this letter, he had not been there yet, right? But it was, it was known, their spiritual influence was known about throughout the inhabited world. And he had heard about it, a lot of it himself, right? So Paul gives thanks to God for that. Um, and then the second point he'll say in 9 and 10, so he, he tells his readers that he's been praying specific things about this church. So he calls on God to be his witness. Read verse 9, if you would. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention him. All right, so he'd been praying for the believers. Basically saying, God, I swear under the fact that God has been, can attest to this, um, even though he'd never met them, right? <clears throat> and he hadn't heard of any major problems. You know, the Corinthian church had a whole lot of problems, right? And so he had had to address many problems with Corinthians. But the Romans, he, he hadn't heard many problems at all. He just wants to make sure, like we went through the purposes, 
that they are doctrinally sound and fundamentally sound, right? So he was praying for the believers without ceasing, right? Um, so there, even though Paul isn't there, he still prays for people he doesn't know or have never seen before, right? There's a, there's a spiritual lesson for us there that believers in China or believers in North Korea or believers wherever, we have a oneness with them, right? We can pray for believers over there because we have spiritual unity with other believers, whether we've met them or not, right? But we know that they are, we are one with them, that they are part of that universal, uh, invisible church. And so here we see Paul doing the same thing, right? Um, Okay, so by prayer on behalf of the believers of Rome, Paul then has a desire to visit them. We, we read about that in Acts, that many times he wanted to go, but he was always prevented for one reason or another. He was really busy, or the weather, or he had to go back, you know, all these things. Um, and so, read verse 10. He calls on God in his prayer. Verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last all right, so like I said, he wanted to go for a long time. All this waiting, he's been praying fervently to go there, that this might be the moment to come. But what does he do? <clears throat> Asking that somehow by God's will, <clears throat> I may now at least succeed in coming to you. So we can take note that even an apostle who's been called, visibly seen the Christ, <clears throat> has the gift of apostleship, has to do what? Pray and, sub and submit himself to God's will, right? And that's what we have to do. Is we have to submit ourselves. We want things. <laughs> we want to go or hear or whatever we want to do. But even Paul, the apostle, saw the resurrected Christ, had to submit his will to God's will, right? That asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. So he knew that he had to submit to God's will. Remember even... Early on in Acts, he wanted to go east, and the Holy Spirit nudged him to go west, right? And so he's having to submit his will to God's will as well. And then a third point of his prayer is in verse 11, and it's about his purpose, why he wants to come to Rome. So read verse 11. For I long to see you, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Okay, so... This is going to kind of push us to a little tangent, this verse. Spiritual gift to strengthen you, yeah. So he wants to strengthen the church, establish the church. Um, so let's look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So in context of that, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. We're going to go off a little tangent of what that spiritual gift might be. So ver uh, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, um, if you'd read that, please. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
Okay, so we see, like we talked about, the primary purpose of the gift of apostleship is to strengthen and found, have a foundation for the church, right? So because this church didn't have a founding by an apostle, Paul wanted to come and establish the church, right? The, so their faith was strong, but there was apparently something missing. It wasn't a problem of, of you know, sin or false teaching. It was something missing. And so we're going to kind of go off in this little tra trail to kind of discuss what this might be. Um, so look at Romans, jump over to Romans 15.29, if you would. So something is uniquely revealed to Paul. Right? And that's kind of what we're going to see. So read, read Romans 15, 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Right, so there's a fullness of the blessing of Christ. And jump one more chapter over, Romans 16, 25 through 27. Okay, so some God apparently revealed to Paul something that he called my gospel, right? He's saying my gospel. Um, it was a unique uniqueness revealed to Paul and may involve kind of two things which we talked about. The special, one of them is the understanding of the union of Jewish and Gentile believers, right? Into one body, um, and then the positional truth of that believer being in Christ. So these two sort of ideas or principles, Paul is saying that it was uniquely revealed to me so that I can present to you the fullness of Christ, right? The fullness, um, let's see, where was that? The fullness of the blessing of Christ, right? That Paul was able to impart to them the fullness of the blessing of Christ and those unique things are there's a special uh, union, union and unity of the Jews and Gentiles into one body, and then the actual positional truth of, of the believer. Remember that I was talking about how you move from a legal position of being condemned into being sanctified, right, or to being saved, to being justified. Why so, was it um, kept secret from long ages? You have to ask God about that. I don't know. True. Well, the gospel has always been there, and it's always been by faith, right? Meaning that those in Old Testament times looked forward to the Messiah, right? We look back to the Messiah. We have the benefit of knowing who it was and what he did, but even the believers in the Old Testament who followed the Mosaic law, they knew that by faith they would give the offerings and sacrifices and do these things. They had, built, they had to have by faith that God 
attributed those things to righteousness to them, right? They knew that those things weren't enough because they had to do it regularly, right? Every year. And then every year the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies and do this whole ceremony for the sins of the nation every year. So it wasn't a one and done thing. So they had to look forward to the promises of God, the new covenant, um, where it would be written in their hearts and they'd have salvation and they would understand his word, right? And so why, so that's, that, I mean, that's obviously a good question, why, but answering why questions of God is beyond anything I could possibly answer. But there are dispensations, right, in the, in the sense of stewardships. The way God deals with mankind does change, right? And not that one contradicts or one is better, it's that God works in those ways. And this, this time, um, it, what is it, Hebrews, right, it talks the very first talks about in these times, in these places, God has in the past revealed himself to the prophets and to the word. But here we have Christ, right? Here, God revealing himself in Christ right now. And so that's the mystery. The mystery is that it was always there, and now I'm revealing it to you to understand it. That's a very good question. I can't answer, you know, why. But that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable thing for us to say. But God in his perfection and God in his holiness and righteousness has the uh, authority to do what he wants, you know, basically. Yeah? We okay with that? He does bring it forth in Genesis. Yeah. And in hindsight, we can we can see it much clearer, right? But um, in foresight, it's hard to imagine and hard to see for sure. Um, I think Taylor asked the why question. Say why is the whole thing done before Noah and the whole thing started? Basically, it was done way back then, before there was ever an Israel or anything. Yeah. You know, if you cut out that whole section of history, <laughs> uh, we don't know why. So. Yeah, it's. That's true. <laughs> but, and thankfully, right? And thankfully, Israel did reject the Messiah. In a sense, we have to be grateful to Israel for allowing us to be in, put in the fold too, right? Paul will make that case that he's. We ought to look at Israel as as our blessing, our saving hope, because yeah. because of them, we can now enter in with them. And so there's. There's some things that are hard for us to, in our culture, in our society to understand, but that's really just an expression of our pagan thinking. Until we align our biblical, until we align our thinking to biblical views, we see our own imaginations, our own things, right, coming out. What? Well, if I was God, I would do it this way. Well, good luck. <laughs> You're not God. If you don't like it, I always say, if you don't like it, go get your own universe, you know? So... Well, we are going to touch on those. Those are, those are very important points. The points that um, Paul has a sort of special uniqueness. 
We're going to touch on those. And the two things are the union of the Jews and the Gentiles into one body. That's a very unique thing according to Old Testament scripture. And then the position, the position of being in Christ. We'll touch. So we're going to go through, actually next week we're going to go through Ephesians because that's going to give us the background for this statement that he's making to the Roman church. Yes, two weeks. Next week is Easter. Yes. Are we good? All right. Let me pray real quick. Father God, we bow our hearts, Lord, before you, thanking you, glorifying you, worshiping you, forgiving us the foundation of an apostle that we can rightly know your word, rightly know your truth, Lord. We ask that you would forgive us and you would continue to cleanse us and wash us and to make it known who you are, Lord, and that we would, we would honor you and glorify you with what we say, with what we do, with what we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.